Join with me in prayer as we begin. Father, I thank you so much for uh, your love and grace upon us. I thank you that uh, it never runs out. It's like the waves of the sea that continue to come and you meet us with your grace. Uh, God, and you wash over us and, and um, overwhelmed by it. I thank you, Jesus, that your heart towards us is tender, that you are a God who pursues us with compassion. I thank you that um, as stubborn as I have been in my life and the places I've run away from you, God, you met me there. And to stand here today is a great honor. It's a privilege to know you and serve you, God. And so we rejoice in you and thank you for this time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as your uh, pastor mentioned, uh, we did meet, um, have met up several times in the last uh, month, a uh, couple months, last year, I should say. Time flies. And I, I really appreciate your heart and uh, just the ability to come and speak here today and the fact that you guys are contributing to the work that we're doing in Skyway, South Seattle. My wife and I uh, came under this uh, very clear direction from God that we were to leave where we were pastoring and go to start a new church. And if I had known what that entailed at the time, I would have been far less excited about it than I was uh, when we started out. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, it's difficult. It's hard ground. And uh, we kept uh, asking God, God, where do you want us to go? We want to not just plant a, a church service. We want to plant the gospel. We want to make disciples. And somehow this community that was not far from where we already lived, uh, Skyway, a Rainier Beach area of Seattle, um, touched us deeply and we began to, to look at each other and to ask God what would happen if this uh, if not just individuals in this place but a whole community became transformed by the gospel what could this look like and uh, that just rang in our hearts and minds so much that we kept driving through this neighborhood and seeing people who had comparatively little access to ever hearing or seeing the gospel lived out there and so through the course of that time, my wife and I moved into the community. I've been there some years, raising our six kids um, there, and um, really love that place. While I'm here, our church is going on. We meet in an elementary school in Skyway, and uh, we never know who's going to show up. I guess you don't here either. Um, but uh, praying that God continues for however long he has us to sow the gospel well um, one of the biggest needs in our community in Skyway is young men who are about to be within a, a couple years launched into adulthood and have to make their way in this world, um, never having or having very little influence of a father, of a dad. And as I look back, I grew up in an intact family with good parents and uh, people who were there to guide me along the way. And even I, as I got married and became a parent and had to fix the faucet and the toilet, I was like, oh my goodness, there's some serious gaps and holes in what I need to know to be a man. I don't know if any of you guys have ever experienced that or not, but like, am I, should I just check my man card right now? Because I don't know how to do any of this man stuff. I've, a lot of us men, even though we're in adult bodies, we're little boys inside. It's true. And from that place, our hearts just began to break for these young men in our community about to go into adulthood, being told that you're, you're supposed to be out on the street, be all hard, project yourself as knowing what you're doing, and uh, you know, get yourself in some trouble to gain some credibility in the street and all these things. And uh, began to, 
to ask them, do you know you have a heavenly father who never leaves, who engraves your name when you trust in him in his hand? And his word says, no one will ever take it. And so from that, uh, that place of, of sadness, really, um, we began this little camp called Man Up Camp um, where we take, just for a week, take young men in the community and teach them how to change oil in their car. Um, we do construction projects together. We do some sports and, and fun things like that. And that becomes a community event where uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are involved in it. Um, and then from that, we have uh, discipleship relationships that come out of that, people who come to church and we meet with more regularly. So thank you so much, church, for investing in that way. Of course, part of that week is, is a, a major portion is teaching about how the gospel changes us, how God is our heavenly father. So you are investing in that work and I'm, I'm so humbled and grateful that you would do that. All right, well, let's uh, spend our, a few remaining moments. I was told that I need to stop at one at the latest. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. There's a clock there. So what is so, that was not a joke. <laughs> Unless your head has been in the sand, um, I'm guessing you've been hearing news and looking out over our country and at times wondering what in the world is going on. I sent a text to a friend, a neighbor actually, who happened to be in Hawaii this week and I never thought I would send this text. I said, hey Daniel, glad you and Melanie didn't get blown up this week. Our world is, is nuts. Thankfully that, that alarm that went off in Hawaii was um, human error. It shouldn't have gone off. but. It's, it's happening in a context in a world where it seems more and more believable that that could happen. I look at headlines in the world and, and try to just make sense of where's, where's this thing going? Where's our country headed? And unfortunately, I, I think it's easy for folks like, such as myself and for us as believers to take stands, form opinions, draw lines, um, engage in pitched verbal battles online, duking it out over things that ultimately do not matter. And what has really meant a lot to me in this season is to not just look forward and wonder where this crazy situation where our country is headed, but to actually look backward, back to our people, not to the good old days of America, there were none, but to our people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who for the joy of knowing God became people without a people, people without a country. They became strangers and aliens on this earth and counted it as nothing because in exchange they got to know and serve Christ. And now in 2018, it's our turn. It's our turn and brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we're waging battles that, that don't matter, trying to uh, and here, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'll meddle hopefully on both sides and everyone will leave offended today. That's, that's usually what happens. But the battle to make America great again, the battle to uh, make this a Christian nation, the battle to do this, to win the culture war here and losing sight of the fact that primarily God wants us to know and obey him. And many people have endured far more confusing and dangerous days than we have and have gone so forward, not with anxiety, but with joy and confidence 
saying, this is our time to serve God faithfully where we are. Did you know most of Christianity has been lived out by our forebears in the margins of society, not being the dominant force in religion and politics and state affairs, but in the margins? And it's actually functioned, dare I say it, quite well there as it's cared for the poor and the outcast, as it has preached the gospel to all nations and peoples, no matter where they came from, as it has seen and understood that to be Christian is to be born into a new spiritual family who our primary identity is not American or anything else. Our primary identity is Christian, belonging to our heavenly father, paid for in adoption by the blood of our older brother, Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes I've minimized that because I've wanted to hold on to something cultural that feels familiar and safe and I want it never to change. And it, brothers and sisters, wake up, it is changing. And I'm not saying we don't speak up, that we don't take a voice in politics or become active in our culture and the world in which we live, but primarily are we realizing that God's call on our life is not a political call. It is not a call to hang on to things which we cannot hang on to. It is to hold on to him and to know him. In our culture, I've been told this, you probably have too, as tragedy after tragedy, as confusing event after confusing event has been blasted all over social media. And those of us who are Christians sometimes responded by saying, I will be in prayer about this. I've been told to, well, I won't say it, bleep your prayers. Where is God in this situation? Where is God? As believers in, in God and in Jesus Christ, this is one of the defining marks of what differentiates us in this world. In the Psalms, King David said, many generations and thousands of years before we were born, speaking of the wicked, the evil culture in which he lived, he said, because they, the wicked, do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he, God, will tear them down and build them up no more, Psalm 28, 5. One of the gifts that we give, one of the ways we're salty, salty in a good way in our culture is to acknowledge God even in confusing and difficult times. This differentiates us from culture is to see what is confusing, what is not going well, and still see clearly God at work. God is sovereign. That even though everything else may be shaken, we are rooted and grounded in him. My message today, though, revolves around this one point of hope that I wish for each one of us can take into a new year, to take hope that in confusing times, in times where the world is questioning, yeah, where's God in this? What good are your prayers doing, buddy? Is that we, grounded and rooted in Christ, can take hope in the fact that God desperately wants you to know him. God is not hiding. He didn't spin the world into existence and this political situation or this whatever world situation and then just watch from the sidelines. God is involved even in the midst of what looks to us as chaos. And I think it's especially in moments like these that we need to hear with fresh ears, God saying, I want you to know me. I don't want you to see me as a mysterious other like the world does. I want you to have a vibrant, 
experiential understanding of me in these days. This for me is a great hope because who of us have not questioned at one point or another, where was God when that happened in my life? Why is God so mysterious? I don't understand him. God wants you to know him. Let's spend the next few moments uh, kind of unpacking this a little bit. God, did you know that God, even in the midst of this world, is revealing himself constantly and continually through his word? And I'm gonna go through, goodness, let's see, five points, five different aspects of God revealing himself in the midst of this chaotic situation. These are not gonna be new to you, but I hope we can hear them with fresh ears. God's revealing himself through his word, first and foremost, his spoken word in creation. I love to uh, look around and see, we live in the midst of a lot of beauty. I sometimes take that for granted. I was born and raised uh, in South Texas. I was born in Freeport, Texas. Any of you been there? You have, all right. Beautiful place, right? No, you're lying to me, it's not beautiful. It's oil refineries and ugliness. That is where I came from. In fact, the hospital in which I was born down there became a Dow chemical plant, um, it's great. But uh, so I moved up here and I've now lived in the Northwest most of my life, but even now, because I've been here a while, I sometimes take for granted the beauty in which we live and you see people, people plan vacations to Seattle. And we live here, how beautiful is that? And to go back and remind ourselves and to acknowledge God to an unbelieving world, to be a bright witness is to start sometimes with the very most basic things we have around us, that God spoke this world into existence. We see in John, excuse me, Genesis 1, and God imagining and being creative and visualizing what could be, and then to make it happen, all he did was spoke. So God's word has enormous power. I cannot speak something into existence. I can't even tell my children to do something and with any confidence know that it will be done. Parents, are you with me? And yet God can take, I was gonna say could take matter, but there was no matter. He could speak the matter into existence and from that matter create something as grand and glorious as this world. Genesis 1, let there be and there was. Let's turn over just for a moment to John chapter one, the gospel of John, which kind of reiterates some of the same fact when it speaks of the person of Jesus. Um, and in our beginning, it says in the beginning, that beginning is not God's beginning, by the way, that's our historical beginning. In the beginning, John chapter one, was the word and the word, the logos was with God and the logos, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And so brothers and sisters, we know that God chose to reveal himself through his spoken word and creation. Jesus was personally involved in that creative act. And when we acknowledge God, unlike the culture around us, even with the most basic elemental things, the beauty that is around us, in the midst of a broken world, we acknowledge God's hand God's fingerprint is here. He has left it for us to know him. And if we study and just take a break from the busy life that we have and just say, God, what are you revealing yourself to be through the created matter, through what we live around? Then you can hear his voice. 
Sometimes that's the best thing for me. I love the city. I do, it's, one, it's my favorite place. But it's good for me to sometimes walk in a garden or a park alone and just have, again, conversations with God that go sometimes like, God, I need you to talk to me today. I want to hear your voice. And one of the ways in which God is, he designed to reveal himself to you is through what he spoke into existence. And it reminds me of his creative genius, his power that in the midst of what looks to me just chaos and bad things happening and my newsfeed flooded with negative things that God is here. George Washington Carver said these words, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. I ask you, brothers and sisters, in 2018, let your prayers, maybe, maybe your prayers need to become a little bit more basic. Sometimes we think we, as we grow and as we develop in Christ, we have to become more complicated in, in our walk with him. But sometimes I think it's the basic things. I know it is for me to just take a walk and say, God, speak to me. I need to hear your voice again. Remind me of your glory, that you are here in the midst of chaos. You planted your fingerprint, your presence, markers and reminders of, hello, I'm a genius, powerful, omnipotent, creative God. And I put this in existence for you, remind me, my soul forgets. See, God has placed so all these things that we might know him. And here's the hope for me. If the world is not going so well, if I only see the messed up version, the sin-filled version, the, curse, the cursed version of this creation, and it's pretty awesome, how good must God be? And if he promises for us, look, one day this beauty, what I've created, will go away and I'm going to make a couple things new for you. No, he says, all things new. That that creative genius, unmarred by sin, which you and I brought into this world, is going to be fashioned and formed and we're gonna be placed inside it once again that we might know God. Does not that give some hope? My future is not tied to what's happening on this world. I'm not having to hold on to something I cannot ultimately control. I can rest in the omnipotence and power of God who speaks things into existence. Hold on to him knowing that the best for me is yet to come when he makes all things new. Spoken word of creation. God is speaking to you. God's not only speaking through you through the spoken word in creation, he's also speaking to you through the human word of incarnation. Go back to, or maybe you're still there, John chapter one. It says in verse three, John 1, three says, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip now down to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God has spoken through his spoken word in creation, but he's also spoken through the human word of incarnation of Jesus, the word, not just speaking and creating, but coming here to live, to be our neighbor, your next door neighbor. Hello, it's Jesus. I've often wondered, 
Could it have been done a different way? Couldn't the delivery method for our redemption and the good news of the world have happened in a different way? Couldn't God have revealed himself differently? And I began to ponder, why, Jesus, did you come as human? And then it dawned on me. It was so obvious after I thought about it for a little, um, not really a trick question, but I'll ask you, why did Jesus come as, reveal himself to us as, as human? And there are multiple answers to this, so you can speak back to me. I'm, I'm from a tiny church. We always talk back and forth, so yeah, this will make me feel more comfortable if you talk to me. To save us from our sins? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. What else? To make him more relatable? Yes. What else? Say that again. To fulfill righteousness. Yeah, you guys are giving great theological answers. Yes. What else? What's that? To reveal our sin. Interesting. To teach us about God because God wants you to know him, right? Creation is not enough. It, is, it does have the, the fingerprint of God, but God wanted more. He moved closer in. But the scriptures tell us that um, what happens if you just see God? You die. So God could have said, all right, your world is messed up. I created it perfectly. You introduced sin. The curse came so I got to come back. And if he had come back in the form of his glorious self, we'd be dead. And so he, come, he came back for all the reasons you mentioned, but wrapped in human flesh so that we might know him in a form that would not kill us, but in a form that actually killed him. And so if you were to look at the scriptures as a long story, one coherent story of a God who moves near to his people, God who creates an environment to put people in and he walks with them in the cool of the day. And then they sin and move apart from him, but he's always coming near. You notice from the very beginning, he says, Adam, where are you? God is, God's position is coming closer and closer then as he chooses Abraham and the people of Israel, he sets up laws, rules, ordinances for the priesthood and all those things. Why? So that he could dwell, he could put his tent right in the middle of them without killing them. And then ultimately, even as they marred that beautiful picture and could not live up to the obligations of that system, God said, well, let me move nearer and let me myself go taking on human flesh to be near them, even though it cost him his life, but preserved ours. God's not done moving near. God doesn't just want to be known as the, the guy next door who took on a physical body. He wants to be so near that he is within us. God wants you to know him through his creation spoken word, through his incarnation, the human word, God with us. Uh, we just came out of the Christmas season where I'm sure you such as, uh, and myself, we read the Christmas story of how the angels appeared to Joseph and Mary and, and said uh, his name, this child, his name will be Jesus. He will save their people from their sin. His name will also be Emmanuel, God with us. In one word is a beautiful picture, a summation of the gospel, a God who comes near 
for compassion. And this gives us hope because we do have an advocate who feels what we feel. Our sins were literally taken on Jesus' back in his person, and he felt those things for us. God's revealing himself through his word. God is revealing himself through the human word and incarnation. I love to read the gospels and get a sense of, this is hard to explain, but I love to get a sense of Jesus as a person. I love that he's divine. I love the theological answers you gave. I love to dwell on good theology and doctrine of what he did. But just as a guy, what was he like? And we, what we have is the witness of his word written about him as a person. It's quite interesting. Like, how do I get to know you, Jesus? Jesus was a very personable guy. He ate and with and, and slept next to and walked beside these other guys. They got to know him. They um, very human. God wants to be known by you. See, the world keeps telling us God, if there is a God, is so far removed, he can't change the situation in which we are. Your prayers don't work. He makes no sense. He's mysterious, whatever. If that works for you, great. Just don't project it into my space. And yet God in truth, as revealed through his word, is a God who is near and took on human flesh and wants to be known and can be known. But he doesn't stop there. God's revealing himself through his word in creation, his word in incarnation, and also his written word in scripture. Let's go over to 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a, a very well-known verse. I have this Bible, right? This, uh, it does magic tricks on me. When I'm preaching, I can't find books of the Bible. And you would not believe how many times I've stood in front of people and quietly have sung the, verses, uh, the books of the Bible song in my head. Thankfully, my parents taught me that as a kid. It comes in handy in moments like this. Do you ever do that, Pastor Jeff? Thank you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God is revealing himself to you through this written word of scripture. And if I could see this as, um, you know, the gospels tell me the humanity of Jesus and what he did as he walked on this earth, but the whole of scripture is to reveal God's heart to us and it's profitable to complete me in every way I need to be completed. If I'm doing something wrong, it corrects me. If I don't know what to do, it, it admonishes me to do this. If I need encouragement, it encourages me. And yet, if I really believed that, I think I would hold it with a little bit more weight than I do. And so while I'm tempted to spend a lot of time in the thorny issues of our day, and let everyone know and share my opinion for what it's worth on social media. I think God personally is calling me back to some simplicity in my life, asking me, do I really value this word? See, the more I know him, the easier it is for me to navigate being a believer in this world. The more genuine I am, the more hopeful I am, 
Let me read this again. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be ready? You want to be prepared for this world in which you live? Men and women of God, get in this book. Not just to gain theological facts, not just to, oh, I have the answer for that, but to know him deeply, the character and heart of God. This is what will bear us through, not just get us through difficult and confusing times, but let our light shine brightly in the midst of difficult and confusing times. The written word of scripture. I love the story. There's not, uh, not great details preserved for us, but uh, uh, not a date really even, but medieval times in Europe in certain parts where the scriptures were banned and to own a copy of the scriptures could land you in jail or worse. And there are many stories told through the generations of there would be one Bible to share over multiple cities, multiple villages, and your village or your household might get one page and you knew that page and it was revered, it was learned, it was memorized. It was, and they couldn't wait to like, what happened in the next page or the next chapter? They treasured what they had. And the story goes one time of um, this Bible that was loved among the Christian community, but was outlawed in this particular village and how that Bible came to be in the household of this woman and her daughter. And they had it out and would read it. And one day as they had it out on their table, illegally treasuring God's word, soldiers came to the door. The mom was in the kitchen baking bread. The daughter was looking out the window and to her horror saw, oh my goodness, without warning, without prelude, here come the soldiers coming to shake down the Christians and specifically find out where the forbidden Bible is. And, and it's, right, it's right out in the open, it's in the kitchen table. So the daughter goes to answer the door to let the soldiers in while the mom is baking bread. And they said, we've heard a report that you have the forbidden Bible. Where is it? The mom, as she's baking bread, says, you may look anywhere in our house. They tossed the house. They looked high and low. The girl was trembling, knowing that at any moment, you know, they're going to find it and we're going to be hauled off to prison. And miraculously, after tossing the whole house, they never found it. And as the soldiers left, the daughter said, Mom, what? it was just here. What happened? And that evening as they ate their food, they had their loaf of bread, right? And the mom gingerly cuts into the loaf of bread until she hits this hard point. And she, in her wisdom, even while the soldiers were coming in, simply folded the word of God into the loaf of bread and baked it in their presence. And that evening still treasuring the word of God, still worth the risk, worth the cost of suffering for God's word, literally eating the bread that encased the scripture. How sweet the words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because it is great privilege, brothers and sisters, to know God, to treasure his word, to not make light of it. It seems simplistic, it seems outdated, it seems not fit for our sophisticated times, but more than ever, it is. 
It is the only thing that equips us to live life in these days. And if we believed that, I think we would treasure it a little more. And I beg you to treasure it. I don't come to you with a legalistic sense of, all right, we're going to set up, uh, you've got to read your Bible 15 minutes a day and read. No, just ask God. God, as you, I'm coming to understand you want me to know you. One of the primary ways you've given me is through your word. Help me to treasure. Turn my heart away from the affections of this world and turn it again towards this, towards you, that I might know you in your word. Hebrews 4, let's turn over there briefly. Another familiar one. Hebrews 4, verse 11 and 12 says, verse 12 actually, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sounds frightening and terrible, doesn't it? Like to be laid open and bare before God. And yet if we remember the compassionate pursuit of a God who loves us and wants to be near, that this kind of soul nakedness is where he comes to do his most divine work. I can't hide. There is just, there's a reason that um, serial criminals have been quoted over and over again, just wanting to be caught on some level, just like the living this life of separation and of playing and of pretending is so stressful that there is a point at which, and I think we get this way with God, is like, I don't, I don't wanna hide anymore. You know, I have a vested interest in keeping my secret sins secret, but as God, I'm convinced that you're for me, you love me and you're compassionate. You're drawing me towards yourself. You're wanting me to know you. These secret sins get laid out in the light of God's word and his presence. And it's a, it's bittersweet. Brothers and sisters, can we recover a heart that's just tender before God that responds to him? Which of us have not struggled with secret sin? Men, which of us have not looked at things we shouldn't have looked at? Which of us have not told lies or lived a double life on some level? So the call to your word is not, is not a call to know facts about God. It is to know God so he might deal with you and draw you close because that is the intention, the kindness, compassionate, fueled intention of the heart of God is to bring you close. My daughter asked me, isn't God kind of prideful? I mean, he likes worship. He gets mad when we worship other things or beings. How is that not prideful? Because if any of us did that, it would be prideful. But for God, it is not. We sat down and talked and said, God is the best thing for us. Knowing God is the best thing for us. And so the exclusivity of knowing him alone as our Lord and Savior is not bad news, is not megalomania. It is God's compassion. Anything else is a cheap substitute. Any lifestyle that we lead apart from him, the light of his countenance and his presence will get burned up. Know him through his word. The hope I have in God's word is that the word itself tells us that it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purposes for which God sent it. None of God's words 
fall to the ground, so to speak. God's words are a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. He wants us to know him through his word. Moving on from there, God also wants us to know him through not just the written word, the human word of incarnation, the spoken word, but through the indwelling word in salvation. And this is where things become much more personal for me, is that Jesus, as he was um, planning and preparing to leave this earth on the night he was betrayed, prayed for me, prayed for you. And his prayer was, God, let them be one in you as I am in you. And you think, yeah, that, uh, I don't know about that prayer. That sounds a little strange. I, I think maybe if Jesus were to modify that prayer and say, make them good church members who come and sit under a great pastor and who tithe and who are involved at least, you know, teach a class now and then. You know, keep them in that mode. But no, God's plans and purposes for us are so much grander and higher than our thoughts. And so he's actually praying, may they experience oneness intimacy with you, Father God, in the same way I, Jesus, do. That seems, that seems scandalous. But Jesus, our older brother, whose blood paid for our adoption into the family of God, he's like, God, I'm, uh, Father God, I'm paying for these, my, my brothers and sisters. There's a reason Jesus is called the firstborn among many. He's the older brother. He's the one who paves the way. He is the sole inheritor of all that God has, except for the fact that he paid for us to be part of the family. So everything Jesus had, now we have rightful claim to in him. I don't think we understand the privilege that we have in him. And so he prays this for us, that he wants to be in us. He doesn't just want to observe him through us, to observe him through creation or read about him in the gospels or the rest of the scriptures. He wants to be and operate within us. John 15, one through seven has familiar words for us in this regard. Jesus speaks to his followers and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. This Jesus is the one who's speaking, the logos, the word of God who says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Where does the vine stop and the branch start? Have you ever had a, a, a grapevine? We have one on our back fence and we... We prune it, it bears great fruit. And uh, the life juices of that plant flow through its entire system. I don't know, we, we prune parts, but I honestly can't tell you where's the vine and where are the branches, the division, they're integrated, they are one. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Brothers and sisters, when he says, my words, if my words abide in you, does not mean that I just intellectually memorized words from the scripture. It is experiencing and knowing God as my personal savior, and he indwells me. At the moment that we are come to him in saving faith and respond to him, confess our sins and believe that he is our savior, he 
His life through the Holy Spirit flows through us. He is in us. And he is praying to the Father, may they experience and know this oneness. Colossians 1.27 says, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where's God in this crazy world? Well, he's, he's speaking. He's revealing in creation through his word, through the testimony of Jesus, the man. But he's also in us and me. So people in this crazy world get to experience God. Maybe this is a scary thought. It probably should be. They get to experience God through you. So what is the message God wants most to get across to the people you work with? What's the message God wants most to get across to the people you go home to? That you play golf with, that you do whatever you do with? Is it that you can win this argument? Is it that you can speak eloquently about politics or life? Or is it that you might communicate a real abiding relationship with Jesus who would save such a person as I? See, this, this gives me a new uh, motivation for humility. God will choose to send forth his word and to knock on the door of someone's heart so that they might know him and use you to do it. That person is going to observe and taste and see that God is good through your contact and relationship with them. What is your contact and relationship like? Is it argumentative? Is it insubstantial because you never talk about the great hope that lies in Christ? May it not be so. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We have the most reason to be hopeful. And I don't say this to, to beat up anyone in here at all. I, I too have struggled with bouts of, of depression. I'm not saying, oh, you must feel happy all the time. I'm just saying, go back to the place where we know from which our hope comes, which is Christ. And this is a gift we give to each other as we meet together, as we meet in small groups, Bible studies, in the day-to-day -day is drawing one another back to the hope we have in Christ. And that hope is what is God speaking to this world, is the same God who says to Adam, why are you hiding in the bushes? Did you sin? Did you eat of that fruit? It's God who pursues. God is pursuing his creation, people in this messed up world through you. God is speaking through you. He wants people to know him. And then finally, as we wrap this up, because who is not getting hungry right now, right? We decided to redo our countertops yesterday. So my kitchen is uh, sheeted off with plastic and uh, can't. Uh, I, so all, all that to say, um, I'm open for lunch invitations, okay? That, that's all I'm trying to say. Actually, I'm not, because I have six children, and I'm going from here to go take care of them. But thank you anyway. Appreciate it. <clears throat> As we wrap up, let's turn in, in our word to uh, Revelation chapter 19. God wants you to know him through his word. He's revealing himself through his word continually and constantly. But there will be an end to all this. The final word in judgment. 
Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from his mouth, the same mouth that spoke the world into existence, that same Jesus Logos, the word, the dynamic power of God. Now at the final act comes from that same mouth, a judgment, a sword pictured here with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The final word in judgment. The final word in judgment. Goodness, you guys, if I had the pressure sitting on me to somehow as a Christian take back our culture, uh, make things right, um, get the world to act in a semi-just and equitable manner towards one another, not start nuclear wars and all that. What a, what a stress that would be. And yet that's not on my shoulders. I know that at the end of all time, the word of God and his judgment will end the nonsense that's going on here. That's his job and it will happen. And there is hope that someone will come to make things right again. Whether we agree on who Jesus is or if God is present or what if all paths lead to God, no matter how we differ, pretty sure most people I talk to, we all agree that the world is not as it should be. We can all, it's funny, and I've had so many of these conversations with people who come to far different conclusions from me about the, the solution, but we, we all pretty much agree the world is, is not as it should be and if it were, this, 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 and this would be fixed. And we're remarkably aligned on those things. We would see justice done. We would see the absence of taking of life. We would see women affirmed and treated with respect in every country and in every land. We would see all these things we could describe. They're not political. They're just human things that we know deep within us and planted by the design of our God, these things need to be made right. We cannot, we can advocate for issues of justice and boy, should we? We need to, the world needs that prophetic voice. The church needs that prophetic voice, but I can't change those things. Those things will never absolutely change until the one comes on the horse whose name is faithful and true and out of his mouth pronounces the final judgment and then it will be made right. And I put my hope in that, I stake my hope in that. God's final word in judgment. Let this light a fire under me, God, and under us the urgency to know God ourselves and to make him known so that those of our friends and neighbors don't know him only in the final judgment. And make no mistake, they will know him then. Someone will make things right again, though. Where do you need to embrace hope for this year? But I most desire for you, brothers and sisters, is that you will, in your heart, God will rekindle this idea that he wants you to know him. 
He wants to be known. He doesn't want to remain this object over here, this mystery that the world calls him, but to be your personal savior, the one who influences you in the day-to-day, -day, the one on whom you stake your hope and your future, the one who grounds you in the midst of an ungrounded world, the one who allows you to share hope no matter what's going on around us. Would you bow with me in prayer and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your compassionate pursuit of us. The, the very definition of grace is you pursuing us with compassion, giving us something we didn't deserve, we weren't looking for, we weren't headed towards, and you ran after us to give it to us. You are a God who pursues. I pray that our hearts would take comfort and hope in you in 2018 like they have never before, knowing that you are a God who wants us to to know you, that you are here to be known. You are a personal God. You have given us creation, your word, Jesus in the flesh, all these things, the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we might know you. And the more we know you, the better it is for us. Many have, have perished. Many have died long ago. Counting, saying is that on their dying lips, God, thank you for letting me know you. The apostle Paul, that I may know him that I may know him, I count everything else as throwaway. And I pray that you would rekindle that in our hearts so we might know you. And if there's anyone here, God, who has known about you, but has never personally dealt with you and said, Jesus, I believe in you, forgive me, indwell me. God, I plead with you on their behalf in the spirit of compassion and mercy that today they would take action on that, that they would respond to you cry out to you with whatever words they need to say, but with a heart that truly believes and repents, turns away from the former way of life so that they might believe in you. God, fill us, fill us as your people with hope like we've never had before. Not hope to win arguments, but hope to be light, salt, even in the margins. We love you, God. It's so worth it. You are worth it. You are a true and great reward. Bless your name, God. Amen.